This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. were off the road yesterday and all on Tesla as Elon Musk set the markets aflame, shall we say, with a plan potentially to take Tesla public. We got to make some more sense of this. And to do that, we have Kathy Wood. She's the CEO and chief investment officer at ARK Invest. They manage $6.5 billion. She's here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in Manhattan. Uh, We also have David Kudla, chief executive. CEO and Chief Investment Strategist, Mainstay Capital Management. They have more than $2 billion under management. He joins us on the phone from Michigan. So, Kathy, let's start with you. What was your reaction to this yesterday? Well, given um, given our research and how undervalued we think the stock is right now, I mean, the stock today is in the 370 range. Uh, we think it's worth today, if this is our bull case, uh, we think it's worth $2,000 today if – if they, if Tesla is successful in rolling out an autonomous taxi network, uh, not even in China, we're not even including China in this calculation, uh, because it will move from a hardware manufacturer with 20% gross margins to a software as a service provider, transportation as a service with 80% uh, plus gross margins. And we think uh, that it's not only going to continue to do very well in the electric vehicle space, uh, but that investors really have to understand this is not just an auto company. This is a software and a technology company. So, Carol, I think we have our bull. Well, yeah, yeah. And, Kathy, that's a long-term perspective. So, no, no. Actually, our five-year – this is the bull case, though. Our five-year price target is 4000 Discount that using a 15% discount rate. Okay. Uh, that would that would bring us to 2000 today. So I'm saying today. Oh, 2000 today. Okay. So it's highly undervalued. You know, it's ironic, but we call ourselves, if you give us a long enough time horizon, a deep value investor. David Kula, come on in on this. You've been shorting this name, Tesla. Yes, we have. When, uh, <laughs> I was shorting yesterday between 3.45 and 4 o'clock and shorting again today. Uh, So we see it differently. Uh, We do see a car company. Currently, about 90% of the revenues come from uh, manufacturing and selling cars, Uh, a company that's now been around for 10 years or no longer a startup. As far as a transition to a software company or everything in the future, whether it's EVs, autonomous, robo-taxis, ride-sharing, whatever it may be, you know, we keep stressing this. Tesla doesn't own the future. They just don't own the future. Look at electric vehicles. Honda is buying their next-generation battery modules from General Motors, Japanese company buying their next-generation electric vehicle battery modules from General Motors. They've already struck that deal. China is going to be very, very active. They made it a national priority to be a leader in electric vehicles. The leader, the recognized leader in autonomous is Waymo. So there is no proprietary technology that Elon Musk or Tesla has. Uh, It is going to be a very crowded space, whether you're talking about uh, vehicles, the 
ride-sharing autonomous technology. Right. And there's going to be a lot of competition, so we, we, we just don't see it. And you know, I don't be, see it the way Kathy does. Right. And, Kathy, we've done here at Bloomberg a lot of stories about, hey, you know, what Tesla did was really kind of wake up everybody when it came to the electric vehicle market. Mm-hmm. And everybody was a bit sleepy, so they kind of had the first mover advantage. Mm-hmm. But now you see, you know, pick your automaker uh, that, you know, whether it's Mercedes, the higher end as well, beca- becoming much more aggressive about this market. Yes, and uh, we've had to face this question for uh, quite some time, and we do because we focus only on disruptive innovation. We, mm-hmm. we focus on it all the time. There's old DNA and there's new DNA. These auto manufacturers came out of the hardware world, and they have great hardware engineers. What they need are software engineers. Tesla's already there. Uh, software engineers are in short supply. So we think they have a, a competitive advantage. But just to uh, focus on a few things that David said, um, uh, EVs, they don't own the market. They're actually doing quite a, a very good job. In July, uh, they announced that uh, they had 52% share of uh, the luxury sedan market, uh, over half, over half of the lug- – so others are coming out with EVs, and they are continuing – that's an increase in share – uh, they also told us that uh, their biggest trade-ins for the Model 3 over the last six to seven months have been the Prius, the Leaf, uh, as well as the Honda Civic, which was the biggest surprise to us. They're expanding the market, the luxury s- sedan market, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people who would never have bought this kind of car before. And in terms of competitive advantage, they absolutely do have competitive advantage. Their battery, according to our uh, uh, estimates and our research, is two to three, and our director of research would say four years ahead of anyone else. Uh, and you can think about this in terms of cobalt, the way they're adding silicon onto the anode they are being very creative and that's not even and and that's not even considering the marvel that their battery pack system which lines the bottom of the car is no one else is doing it that way so david i, I only have about 30 seconds left but i have to ask you how much of your short is about the company and how much of it is about elon musk the it, it's about fundamentals for the company uh i i i think that that Kathy's right. You know, Elon Musk has been a disruptor. He, you know, you've got to admire the mission of saving the planet, moving to sustainable energy, moving the industry in that direction. In terms of the engineers, uh, there is a legacy business in Detroit and in, in other traditional automakers that is extremely profitable that, that Elon Musk and Tesla don't have to fund uh, the next generation of flexible mobility, mm-hmm. and that's where GM and Ford and, and these Ford automakers have that. Right. And they do have great engineers, Kathy. I know them. They've got great <laughs> engineers, Dave, and they are going to beat Tesla. David Kudla, Kathy Wood, you've got to come back at some point because this conversation, we've got to continue it. This is Bloomberg. Up in the morning and out to school. Going to school. Yep, that's what happens. We got a lot of uh, folks in universities and colleges, and that adds up to a lot in student loans. As we mentioned earlier, one and a half trillion dollars in student debt, according to the Fed. That's more than auto loans and credit cards. Go figure. Our next guest says the issue with student debt, not the cost, but the outcomes. Let's bring in Vince Passioni, founder and CEO at LendKey. It's a lending platform, online marketplace that puts together borrowers and local credit unions and community banks. He's in our New York studio. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Carol. Tell us a little bit more about what you guys are doing exactly, because you've been around for about a decade. That's right. So we saw a great opportunity to 
increase the amount of lending capacity in the market by driving more lenders into the marketplace. And we thought the outcome would be creating more flexible and more affordable private student loans. So we built a very unique piece of technology that basically enabled any community bank, any credit union, these are local lenders, right. to get to offer an education loan or an education finance loan using our platform. What's the rates typically on something like that? So typically the average rate is about 5.5%. They go as low as 2.5%. Mm. And they, they are really serving sort of that you know middle middle market, right? Mm-hmm. And we're right smack in the middle of the sort of prime lending season, right? As this, the most recent graduating class gets ready uh, to go off to school. Any trends you're seeing now that we're in the heat of it? Well, look, this is game time, Jason, right? This is game on because you've got to get funded and you've got to get funded before you show up to school in September. So typically what will happen is parents will start they probably filled out their FAFSA form, which is that free application for federal aid mm-hmm. in January. They've gotten their award letters in April, and now they're going through the process of understanding the expected family contribution, which is how much they'll have to come out of pocket in order to fund the rest of it. So how much the universities think, Jason, you and I will eventually have to pay for our kids. Here's what we think you can afford. Well, today it's about $46,000 for one-year private school. And obviously, you've got younger kids. You have to start planning for that now. And as we always advise parents is you have to approach this where it is about an outcome, not an experience when you're paying that kind of money. So what do you mean by that? Well, look, back you know, 10 years ago, it might have been a lot cheaper. But when you look at someone who's in high school, especially my daughter, I was taking her around looking at schools. And the person who was running orientation at that particular school said, how many folks in the audience know what they want to major in? And about 50% of the people raised their hand. She said, that's great because 50% of the people typically don't know. And I'm the parent in the back of the room raising my hand going, and what are you going to do about it? Yeah. How is she going to find out? Right. Because paying $46,000 a year and using that as the experience for her to figure it out is pretty expensive, especially if she picks the wrong major. And if we were financing it, it would be really rough. Yeah. And what's the breaking point for the system, do you think? I mean, you know this world intimately now. Like, what is going? what is it going to take – to really upend this and, and have a broader reconsideration of cost. So let's step back for a minute, Jason, right? So if you take a look and say that for the last 30 years, college tuition costs have increased by about 300%. And the last Outpacing everything else that's out there. It's ridiculous. Sure. Now, in the last few years, what's happened, thanks to the press, thanks to the government, I think families have become much more discerning, mm-hmm. understanding the cost, and that just because a school is expensive doesn't mean it's the best school to go to for your child, mm-hmm. right? Now- the typical breaking point I like to use as a rule of thumb is you need to think about your, what, your, what career you're going to get with that major and make certain that you don't lend, you don't borrow more than your first year's annual salary. So a number, right? The uh. average annual salary for a new graduate is about $50,000. So if you're going to turn around and get a bachelor's degree in economics and you're going to take out $50,000 in loans, you know, that's about right. You can probably make that work. But when you start getting into you know, seventy, dollars $100,000 for that bachelor's degree, it's getting pretty expensive for you to pay it back. One of the things that jumped out as is, is I was reading some of your material ahead of time was this idea that the higher the loan, often the more likely it is to be paid back. Why is that? That feels counterintuitive to me. Why yeah. is that? So mm-hmm. because, because typically someone who's borrowing more, typically someone who's borrowing more is going for an advanced degree. And someone with an advanced degree typically will demand a higher salary upon graduation. If you peel back the student loan debt number, right, and you look at the number of folks that are defaulting on federal loans, about 70% of those folks went to a community college Mm. or went to a for-profit school, right? And they're having a lot of difficulty paying back their loans, but their debt is under $10,000 a person. So 
Okay, interesting. Because the, and this is where you get into the issue of the issue. Yes, it's cost, but the major reason why and the thing to be concerned about with that number is the number of people who can't pay it back. What do you What do you do? Just got thirty seconds because I've done a lot of stuff on student loans and and the difficulty that people had in paying it back or working with an organization, especially the private loans, to pay it back, where they could get very aggressive. What do you guys do and work with people who might run into some trouble? Just got about twenty uh, seconds. Absolutely. So so I always encourage people. Call your lender, right, when you have difficulty because they have all kinds of options like forbearance where you can stop paying the loan for a period of time if you you had a, you lost your job, you had a, a health issue. But don't avoid speaking to your lender. That is a huge mistake. Let them know what's going on. There's always some kind of option to help you through it and try to avoid defaulting on that loan. And you guys do that. Absolutely. All right. Interesting stuff. Vince. Thank you so much. Vince Passioni, founder and chief executive officer at LendKey in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Well, there's a lot going on out in the world, Carol, and tariffs are one thing that every investor seems to be keeping an eye on. To help us make sense of that, we're bringing in Matt Schreiber. He's the president and chief investment strategist at WBI Investments, overseeing about $2 billion in assets on the phone with us from Red Bank, New Jersey. Hi, Matt. How should we be thinking about this? We obviously had new you know, tariffs go into effect. Uh, we're talking about Iran. We're talking about Russia. We're talking about China. Seems like a big deal. How is the market reacting? Well, I think people have been uh, paying attention to the headlines. They've been caught up on what's going on geopolitically with tariffs. It's been a big overhang on the markets. And one thing that everybody's missed is that – Fundamentals are fantastic. Right. They're really excellent at the moment, and that should be a good thing for U.S. stocks, despite the tariff overhang. And one of the things that's obviously driving that, and I believe this is part of your thesis, is the tax cuts have had an effect and, and may continue uh, to have an effect for some time. How do you price that in, and how long does that uh, effect last, and, and, and what is the relationship between sort of these two Ts, the taxes and the tariffs? Yeah, well, uh, I think that uh, corporations have a little bit more money in the piggy bank. They've been putting that to money uh, via stock buybacks, uh, increasing dividends. These are good things for investors, and there has not been you know, much talk about that. Obviously, doing buybacks is supportive of the market, but dividends are a huge home run for investors. And um, you know, that's, that's something that we like here are increasing dividends. Great fundamentals, great dividends. It's a good thing for investors. All right. Is it really all that good? <laughs> it should be good. It, it should be good. Uh, we haven't seen a, a rise in prices here. And, again, that's uh, mostly due to, uh, you know, tariffs and the overhang. But at the same time, there have been some trade deals getting done. Uh, just, you know, coming on the, uh, o- over the news uh, a couple of minutes ago, U.S. and Mexico might be close to, you know, uh, coming to an agreement on autos. Right, right, by the end of the week. And the, but at the same time, of course, the news, uh, you know, earlier today about China matching the latest U.S. tariff shot, right? So, you know, sure. it's no longer trade talk. It's a trade war. Uh, and that's what we're seeing. And, you know, who knows how this plays out ultimately, Matt, uh, you know, whether or not we get to some new agreements uh, with China and, and others or whether or not it leads to higher prices potentially for folks and what impact that could have both on companies and their profit margins and just kind of the overall macro environment. 
Sure. Well, I think that a lot of companies are passing on uh, some of um, – you know, the tariff uh, situation in prices, higher prices to consumers. The consumer is extremely confident at the moment. We saw the uh, consumer board uh, number is not, you know, at the highest level ever, but it's pretty darn strong. Uh, people keep spending money. Credit card debt just keeps ballooning. I think people are thinking that they're going to get more money back, you know, this year when they uh, go to file taxes and stuff. And at the same time, Hopefully, we'll see wages continue to rise a little bit more. And really, we don't think the trade war is as much a threat to the market as the Fed is uh, more likely to raise rates, you know, faster in the future as we start to see wages, you know, start to rise and you see some inflationary pressures in the system. Well, let's talk about the Fed for for a second. I mean, what are you seeing signal-wise as you dig into the commentary, the minutes, you hear the Fed speakers? Uh, do you think they have a good handle on, on where we are? And, and what's your biggest single concern? The, the real concern is if you take a look at housing so far, uh, housing, existing home sales has started to slump a little bit. That's yeah. because you have prices up. Uh, at the same time, mortgage rates are up just slightly o- over the last couple of years. But really, prices are also up at the same time, making it harder for people to acquire a home that's, you know, in their price range. Right. We just they, had that story. Can... We just had a story in the Bloomberg and in Bloomberg Business Week that talks specifically about that. People, you know, buyers are starting to push back. It's just too much at this point, especially when you're seeing, you know, interest rates beginning to creep up. And so that is kind of hurting some of the sellers. And we're seeing some of that. The question was maybe, you know, are we topping out? when it comes to the housing market and what that tells us about the broader environment. Sure. I think as, as you have, uh, you know, housing prices rise and asset prices, stocks rise, that continues to, to make people feel good about investing. When that paradigm starts to shift and if housing prices start to take a hit, yeah. that's where I think investor psyche so, could change. So, Matt, tell me about the folks that you invest Tell me what kind of, you know, new money is coming in. Tell me what your clients are asking you to do. Are they asking you to be more cautious? Yes, we we manage risk to capital first and foremost. That's what uh, you know. The name of our company is it's Wealth Builders Inc. Uh, that's what WBI stands for. So we've always had an eye on managing risk. We think cash is king when you know prices start to fall. Uh, at this point, though, the fundamentals have been you know pretty darn good. Prices have been you know flat so far this year, depending on the index. Obviously, the the Dow and the S and P are up, but when you take a look at certain segments of the marketplace, uh, not quite is good, but especially on the value side. But I do think that uh, people are starting to become more cautious. Um, We hear a lot more about investing overseas. The fundamentals really just don't justify putting money to work, you know, overseas at the moment. I think they have more risk in terms of the trade war, as most of the developed economies overseas are in a far worse spot from an economic productivity standpoint than the United States. So the United States is still the best game in town, but most people are starting to become uh, a little bit more in tune with some of the risks that's out there, the geopolitical news, the tariffs, et cetera. Um, so I think they're taking a little bit more measure approach to where they're putting their money. All right, we're going to run. Put it in all in Fang stocks. Cool. Great to check in with you, Matt Schreiber. He's president and chief investment strategist at WBI Investments. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. 
we do want to get to a lot of most read stories, uh, a lot of things going on. And this is one of the most read stories. It has to do with Tesla. A lot of them are about Tesla, in fact, today. Uh, And this one is about Musk's Twitter storm, which we've all been caught up in, uh, which happened about 24 hours. Well, not quite 24 hours ago yesterday. But we might be missing an important detail with all of this stuff going on. It is not missed, though, by our Molly Smith. Uh, She's corporate finance reporter at Bloomberg News in our New York studio as well. What might we be missing that's important here? Well, as we saw after Musk's tweet yesterday, the stock rallied uh, all the way up to $380. And that's uh, about $80 above where it was last week before earnings. So stock has gotten a ton of momentum lately. And that's really important when you look at Tesla's convertible debt, because a lot of them have what's called a strike price, which means that once the stock reaches a certain level, those holders can convert their bonds into equity. And reduce the debt, event, essentially, right? Exactly. So how, that would way, be how close a, are we? Close to... The strike price? We're above it we're on above some it. of the bonds, even though the uh, stock has fallen a little bit today, just as people are questioning this secured funding language from Elon and what that may mean. But we're still above the strike price on at least one of the biggest maturities coming up. Well, and I loved this story. I mean, first of all, I got a lot of readership on the mm-hmm. on the Bloomberg terminal. It yep. is a classic classic Bloomberg story in a lot of ways. This is exactly, and please take this as a compliment. mind, this is exactly the sort of wonky story that people count on Bloomberg for. Um, but what's so interesting is it also sort of underscores the fact that this is a complicated deal in a lot of ways, and there are a lot of implications that aren't obvious to, to sort of the naked eye. It also, I, I would imagine, and I'm sure you have an opinion about this, portends maybe uh, some turns in this deal that aren't just a straight ahead buyout that that, that Musk and the board may be may actually be playing Have a, a strategy, little more chess right? than yeah. than we thought this time yesterday. Totally. And that's exactly from talking to uh bondholders and from pretty much everyone else under the sun who has commented on this in the last 24 hours, you know, to take Musk at his word. He did not say buyout, didn't say leverage buyout. He said go private. Go private. So yeah. that Again, could look like a lot of different things. And from many people who we've talked to so far, it doesn't sound like more leverage on a company like Tesla right now sounds like a good idea. Yeah. And and I'm (laughs) really glad you brought that up because one of the things as we played this out last night and as we all I think we're talking to to people and calling up our investor friends and certainly in the private equity and hedge fund world, they were saying, don't think about this as an LBO. Don't think about this as TXU Redux. Don't even think about this as Dell. Think about this. You're exactly right, Molly. Think about this as a buyout that may look as so many things with Elon Musk do, unlike anything else you've ever seen. Right. And with the reference to Dell, that was something even Elon had brought up in response to a Twitter user. But keep in mind that when Dell uh, went through that transaction, that it was, I believe, investment grade rated at the time. Right. And Tesla right now is well into junk with its bonds currently rated triple C by Moody's. So a lot of moving parts that are very different. And leverage leverage buyout relies. I'm so excited about this. Leverage buyout. You have to leverage some cash flow. I mean, that's the whole idea. cash flow? Exactly. Like, ain't (laughs) no cash flow there. Right. Well, and who knows, you know, and if you, again, take Musk at face value for what he's saying, he's saying next quarter or really the second half of the year more broadly that the company is going to be cash flow positive and sustainably profitable for the first time in its 15-year history. But everyone who I talked to after the earnings last week – 
still doesn't really see the math to that happening, especially without another capital It's race. such a Harvard Business School case study, <laughs> whichever way it ends out. No, really. Yeah, like, yeah, right? It's exactly. just like blowing my mind. Do we have any indication that anybody has converted or we don't know yet? At this point, it wouldn't make sense for you to convert right now. And um, again, I don't know Musk's intentions. We've never talked, but it wouldn't like it really wouldn't make sense for you to convert the debt right now. There's still a decent premium on it. it. But as we get closer to the maturity date, that's when the choice is much more obvious if the stock is still above the price. Molly Smith, smart story, most read story on the Bloomberg, among the most read corporate finance reporter at Bloomberg News. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, it is time for the drive to the close. Ryan Dietrich is senior market strategist at LPL Financial. Says investors should stay invested. LPL, by the way, $615 billion in assets under management. Ryan, back with us from Charlotte, North Carolina. And as we do it, we just want to mention a headline that crossed uh, the Bloomberg. And this is uh, apparently coming from the Wall Street Journal. The SEC said to be examining whether Musk's, Elon Musk's statements in that tweet yesterday were truthful and that the SEC has made inquiries to Tesla over Elon Musk's, quote, take Taking private tweet and is examining if his statements were truthful. The stock's been down pretty much all day, but it looks like it took another leg down uh, on uh, that headline. The stock right now down 2.6% at $369.69 a share. Hey, Ryan, good to have you here with Jason and myself. You know, I didn't have a chance to ask you ahead of time, but I wondered if you've taken, because of all of the focus on Elon Musk uh, this week already, if you've taken a look technically at all at uh, Tesla shares. Well, Carol, first off, it's glad to be back. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to talk about individual equity, so I can't really go into that one. So I, I apologize. Well, fair enough. Can we broaden out, though, to the tech universe? Absolutely. And I'm curious, tell me what you've seen, because much of the gains that we've seen, certainly in the equity markets and some of the major equity averages, have been because of a few tech names, not necessarily Tesla, but a few tech names. What do you see when you look at the tech sector broadly, technically? That's right, Carol. So you talk about tech in general. Clearly, it's been leading once again this year. And the big headline that we've all heard is the largest five stocks are about 14% of the S&P 500, which is larger than the bottom 250 stocks. Now, that that headline right there tells people maybe just a few stocks are pulling us higher. But we went back to the uh, early 1970s with help from our friends at Ned Davis Research, and we found that 14% is about average for the total market weight of the large five largest stocks. And when you look at some of the equal weight ETFs out there when it comes to technology stocks, those are right around um, new highs as well. So yes, sure, there's some stocks that are leading us. We get it. But we just don't buy the, the, I guess, the false narrative, we'll call it, that only a few stocks leading us higher. We do think this is a relatively broad-based move, tech's leading, but there are some other groups that are really participating as well. Well, because, Ryan, you look at earnings season, and it feels like the consensus is in that pretty good earnings season. You know, there was not a lot of not a lot of big disappointments. There were some notable ones like Netflix, but generally a lot of optimism coming out of these last quarterly reports. 
Well, you're right, Jason. I mean, as everyone probably comes on with you guys all day and talks about two straight quarters of two um, 20% year-over-year earnings gains. What we think is even more important, though, look under the surface. Forward four-quarter estimates for S&P 500 companies are actually higher this earnings season. Mm. You go back in history, normally that's down 2 to 3%. So the big thing is, of course, tariffs. We talk about that a lot. Are tariffs really impacting S&P 500 companies? Well, they're increasing their guidance, and that's normally not what they do. So that's a... That's quite powerful, we think. At the same time, S&P's, you know, four months in a row here. Uh, so maybe, you know, we are in the troublesome, historically, August-September time period, especially during a midterm year. So maybe some type of correction is, you know, volatility is perfectly normal. But the, those underlying fundamentals that have got us near, you know, half a percent from all-time highs in the S&P are really still there and should lead us higher before the year is said and done. So, Ryan, I like technical indicators, but it's, it's you know, you're going based on what kind of happened, and it doesn't always guarantee what's going to happen. Um, among the indicators that are out there, what what has been, though, historically the most reliable, and what is it telling us right now about the equity environment? Yeah, great question, Carol. So if we're talking on technicals, you know, just the advanced decline line, the NYC advanced decline line, which simply looks at how many stocks go up versus how many stocks right. go High down lows, each yeah. day. Exactly. And that is right near all-time highs. And there's various advanced decline lines <clears throat> on small caps, mid caps, technology. All of those are right around all-time highs also. So that's another signal to us that there really is some good participation under the surface. And one other thing, you know, let's talk about sell and may go away. I know I came on with you guys back then and we talked about why maybe this year wouldn't work. Clearly, it hasn't worked. We took a look when you have April, May, June, July, all higher for the S&P like we have this year. So sell and may go away is not working. Those final five months of the year are higher 10 out of 10 times, higher every single time going back to 1950. So maybe the market is telling us something when sell and may, doesn't, <clears throat> sell and may go away doesn't work. Maybe the bulls will still be in command here. Amazing. And one of the things that the, the bulls have seemed to shrug off, as it were, I'm thinking of a shrugging bull uh, at the moment, <laughs> is all this trade and tariff talk. I mean, we've got headlines today uh, about Russia. We've got headlines this week about Iran. All of this is happening, and the market seems nonplussed, to say the least. What do you make of that? You're right, Jason. It's it's amazing, isn't it? You know, you talk about the tariffs. Now, manufacturing, we had that weak manufacturing print recently on the ISM number. But you look at the jobs data we just had, 37,000 jobs were created in manufacturing uh, last month. That's one of the most we've had this cycle. So manufacturing jobs are still increasing. You'd think they'd be the first canary to kind of, you know, to drop, I guess we'll call it, with the, manuf- with, uh, the tariff wor- worries. And it's not quite happening yet. And the bottom line, though, the positives from fiscal policy, you know, tax tax reform, repatriation, um, you know, deregulation, those are significantly two to three times higher than the potential negatives of all the tariffs as we know it now. So there's still more positives and negatives. We get it. There's negatives out there. But I've been coming on to you guys for a while saying this market's going higher, and we still suggest that's the area it's going to go. All right. Market cycles, they don't end just because they're old. I mean, uh, anything, though, with the, the duration of the market cycle, just quickly? Well, that's right. You know, uh, that's a great point, Carol. Later this month, we're going to have the longest bull market in history, uh, topping the 90s. So right there, it's a warning sign that, yes, we're late in the cycle. But one thing that we like to point out is late in the cycle, you tend to have more volatility. Well, bull markets don't die of old age. They die of excesses, is our opinion here at LPL Research. We simply aren't seeing some of the excesses we've seen before. Expect volatility. But this bull market and economic cycle very well could have another year or two left, at least. Good stuff. Ryan Dietrich, Senior Market Strategist for LPL Financial, joining us on the phone from down south. Always good to hear your southern accent, my man. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> you and you southern types. Come on. we got to stick together, Carol. <laughs> and guess so. 
Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.